everyone, welcome back to the online ministry of Grace Baptist Church. We're continuing our series called Israel's Greatest Philosopher. Too often we go through life assuming the answers to life's biggest questions. What gives life satisfaction? How can I find meaning? What's the point of it all? Ecclesiastes gives answers that change how we see our lives and our place in the world. And today we're talking about seeing life as it is when we're tempted to look away. Lula Wang, in her 2019 film, The Farewell, portrays our tendencies toward denial better than almost anyone. Based on her own life experience, The Farewell tells the story of a Chinese-American family that learns that their grandmother has cancer and only has a short time left to live. They decide to tell the grandmother uh, nothing about her true diagnosis, but instead plan an elaborate family gathering as an excuse to see her before she dies. When the daughter struggles with the idea of lying to their grandmother, the mother explains, it's not the cancer that kills them, it's the fear. While there's much that is culturally unique about this beautiful story, the denial that it expresses is universal. If the farewell gives the Eastern expression of this, fame might be the Western one. In 1980, the movie Fame came out and told the story of some gifted teenagers at a New York high school for the performing arts. The tagline of the movie, the chorus of the soundtrack, its hit song said, Remember my name, Fame. I'm going to live forever. I'm going to learn how to fly high. But almost 30 years later, when they did a remake of the movie, they went with a whole new cast of actors. Presumably, the previous actors weren't young enough or fit enough or pretty enough to keep up. People don't live forever, and they don't learn how to fly either. We go through life today with a profound denial about many of life's unpleasant realities, and it leaves us unprepared when we're confronted by them. I'm convinced that our generation needs the truths of Ecclesiastes 7 verses 1 to 14 more than ever. And so if you have your Bible, I want to encourage you to turn with me there now and follow along as I start reading at verse 1. If you don't have a Bible, you can click on the link for today's passage in the description below. I'll read the passage in three sections, starting first with Ecclesiastes 7, verses 1 to 4. A good name is better than precious ointment, and the day of death than the day of birth. It's better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting, for this is the end of all mankind, and the living will take it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face, the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. This is the word of God. Now, the first warning of today's passage is, don't live in denial of your death. Embracing the end of life teaches us how to live. Don't live in denial of your death. Now, verse 1 looks like it's going to start talking about the importance of character, but when it says a good name is better than precious ointment and the day of death and the day of birth, the philosopher is talking about something he hopes you already believe to convince you of something that you probably don't. In the same way that character makes a deeper impression on us than someone's cologne, There's more to learn from death than there is from a baby's birth. A birth is more fun, way more fun than a funeral, the same way that perfume strikes our senses as pleasant before we know anything about a person's character. But it's the funeral more than the birth that has the power to change us. 
and verse 2 explains why. It says, It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting, for this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. A funeral confronts us with what we all want to ignore. It forces us to accept the reality of death and prepare for what comes next. A funeral brings life into focus. It shows us what's, what matters and what's just a distraction. You know, I've been to a number of funerals, and I've never heard a eulogy where people talked about how much it meant to them that the deceased had a six-pack or great nails. People don't talk about the clothes they wore or the grades they got. They talk about the person's character. They talk about their faith. They talk about the way they loved. In the end, those are the things that ultimately matter. So confronting death teaches us how to live, shows us the kind of person we want to become. That's why, in part, Jesus said, blessed are those who mourn. It's what Moses is talking about in Psalm 90, verse 12, when he says, teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. But what do we do instead? We obsess over cat videos. We send each other memes. We binge Netflix. And we entertain ourselves to the point that we never really have to think about life. And we certainly don't think about death or what comes after it. And we're not even prepared for sickness. It's like the soundtrack from fame is playing in the background of our lives. I'm going to live forever. I'm going to learn how to fly. Only we're not. And we become a shell of the people we were created to be when we pretend that we will. I read of a South Carolina funeral home that was planning to open up a coffee corner. It would be stocked with Starbucks coffee and offer free Wi-Fi and a fireplace and a TV. And the owner said he hoped it would help mourners get their minds off what's going on. That's our generation right there. Distract yourself. Try not to think about reality. But as a result, when harsh reality actually hits us, we're totally unprepared. Listen to the philosopher when he says in verse 3 that sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face the heart is made glad. Lean into the hard times, because it's there that your character is forged. Learn from your trials, because it's there that you develop patience and grit. And ask God to refine you in grief, because it's there that he can build your joy. So don't live in denial of your death. But don't live in denial of your faults either. We don't like to deal with criticism any more than we like to deal with sickness or life's endings. But correction is God's means for helping us to grow. Don't live in denial of your faults. Now for this principle, we turn to verses 5 to 7. So follow along as I read. It's better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise man than to hear the song of fools. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of the fools. This also is vanity. Surely oppression drives the wise into madness, and a bribe corrupts the heart. Now the philosopher is telling us something that he knows we'll struggle to accept. I don't know anyone who says, the thing that I really love to listen to, more than anything, more than Taylor Swift's new album, is someone who can really point the finger on my sin. People don't say that. People can listen to Spotify all day long, but try to challenge the way they live and they'll tune you out. And that makes us shallow 
makes us immature, and it makes us blind to our weaknesses. Proverbs 13 verse 1 says, A wise son hears his father's instruction, but a scoffer doesn't listen to rebuke. If you're living with your parents right now, I know that you think you've got it figured out. I sure did. But there are blind spots that only they can help you see. And it's in the home that we're supposed to learn to see the value of correction. People who never learn that are unteachable at work and defensive in their marriages. We need to learn to value negative feedback from others. We all hate it, but we all need it. We need to learn David's heart, who received the rebuke of Nathan the prophet and said in Psalm 141, verse 5, Let a righteous man strike me. It is a kindness. Let him rebuke me. It is oil for my head. Let my head not refuse it. This is how we grow. This is the path of wisdom. And the philosopher is warning us that too often we're plagued by superficiality. We never get serious enough or vulnerable enough to allow anyone to speak to us. That's why in verse 6, he compares the laughter of fools to the crackling of thorns under a pot. If you try to start a fire with thorns and you're trying to cook a meal, you'll get a quick flame, lots of noise, but little heat. And he's not saying there's, a, there's anything wrong with jokes and laughter. He's already told us in chapter 3 that there's a time to laugh and a time to weep. But some people use jokes and laughter as a form of denial and escape. If you go back and listen to interviews with Robin Williams, you hear this. Whenever someone would ask him anything personal or real, he'd turn it into a joke. It was like he was incapable of interacting at a basic human level. But when he committed suicide in 2014, we learned his life had been no laughing matter. And we all struggle. We all have needs. We deal with sins and we have blind spots that only others can see. If we're not willing to listen and let others in, the problems only get worse. They say that if one person calls you a donkey, don't pay attention. But if two people call you a donkey, you better get a saddle. Are you developing the kinds of relationships where people can call you a donkey? And when they do, do you listen? Or do you deflect or become defensive? Have you learned to invite negative feedback? At Grace, our life groups are the place where we try to build these kinds of relationships. And if you're not in one, you're missing the wisdom that God wants to provide you. So don't live in denial of death. Don't live in denial of your faults. And finally, don't live in denial of your pride. I think we all need to develop a healthy suspicion of ourselves in this regard. We need to assume our pride and look for it instead of living in denial of it and assuming everyone else is the problem. Hear the conclusion of this passage as I read verses 8 to 14. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning. And the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the heart of fools. Say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. Wisdom is good with an inheritance, an advantage to those who see the sun. For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money. And the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? 
In the day of prosperity, be joyful. And in the day of adversity, consider God has made the one as well as the other, so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. Pride takes a number of forms. There's a pride of impatience. It wants everything now. In verse 8, when it says, better is the end of a thing than its beginning, it's reminding us that the process is hard. The work to get there often is too. But the end is worth it if we can only have the patience to wait for it. Our pride often refuses to wait, though. We want it now. We want the job now. We want the promotion now. We want the healing now. We want the changes and the growth and the help now. Patience says that the wait will be worth it. In addition to the pride of impatience that wants everything now, there's also the pride of anger that wants its own way. Verse 9 says, Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the heart of fools. What gets you angry? What are you uptight about? How much of it stems from your pride? I know that person didn't do what they should have, but how often have you done the same thing? I know that things didn't work out the way you wanted, but who told you they were supposed to? If you've been around the church for a while, you may have developed a new way to excuse your anger. Christians learn from the Bible, there's a category called righteous anger. And this is a real thing. But I think there's about as much righteous anger as there are righteous people. It's pretty rare that our motives are ever that pure. More often, it's coming from a place of pride. Anger lodges in the heart of fools. What, hap <clears throat> what happens in your heart when you don't get your own way? Now, the final form of pride the philosopher gives to us in this passage is one that Christians are perhaps particularly prone to. It's the pride of nostalgia. The pride that says, we want it the way it was. Listen to verse 10. It says, Say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. Anybody find yourself saying, it was better before. I like my old pastor better than you. I like the sermon series you did last year better than this one. I like, I like that ministry you used to do. Why did you stop it? Or Windows 98 was perfectly good. I don't know why they had to change it. I like the way our country used to be. Why did it have to become like this? I can't imagine bringing a child into a world like this. Can you hear the pride in those statements? It's like we're saying, things are different now, so God must be less in control. It's not the same, so God's plant isn't as good as it was before. Things have changed, so God probably can't do anything significant anymore. All of those statements are crazy, right? There's no question about whether God can work. The only issue is whether your pride and mine will keep us from looking for it. Our tendency is to keep evaluating the present in light of the past. But the perspective of Scripture is to evaluate the present in light of the future. God wants us to keep our eyes on where history is heading, not just where it's been. But to do that, we need to admit that He's in control, not us. It's going to happen according to His plan, not ours. You would think that humility would come more easily to Christians, right? According to psychologist Kim Hall, though, that's not often the case. She says this, People seem to believe that they have an inalienable right to be happy. 
I want what I want and I want it now. No one wants to wait, wait for anything. And for the most part, no one has to anymore. She says, waiting is interpreted as pain. People will walk into my office and say they're Christians, but I see no difference except they want to be happy. And now they expect God to make it so. Well, that's what happens when Christians live in denial. When we refuse to learn from death, when we're unwilling to face our faults, and when we fail to see our pride. That's what happens when Christians treat God like a genie instead of their Lord. And so the invitation of this passage is to open our eyes to life as it is, not as we'd like it. To recognize that God is in control, not us. And to pursue the wisdom of God as our strength and our security and our help. In the fall of 1991, Gerald Sitzer was driving home with his wife, his four children, and his mother when their car was struck by a drunk driver. In an instant, he lost his wife, his mother, and his four-year-old daughter. In the wake of that unspeakable tragedy, he wrote a book called A Grace Disguised. In it, he writes this, Gifts of grace come to all of us, but we must be ready to see and willing to receive these gifts. It will, requ it will require a kind of sacrifice, the sacrifice of believing that however painful our losses, life can still be good. Good in a different way than before, but nevertheless good. I will never recover from my loss, and I will never get over missing the ones I lost, but I still cherish life. I will always want the ones I lost back again. I long for them with all my soul but I still celebrate the life I have found because they're gone. I've lost, but I've also gained. I lost the world I loved, but I gained a deeper awareness of grace. And that grace has enabled me to clarify my purpose in life and rediscover the wonder of the present moment. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't know if I'm living the kind of life that will prepare me to face loss with that kind of strength and maturity, but I know that I want to. And I'm not naive enough to think that I won't ever have to face challenges like that. The truth is, in one form or another, we all will. To think otherwise is just denial. When Jesus came into this world, he did so with his eyes wide open. And he sought to open the eyes of the blind. He didn't just not live in denial of death. He was the one who was born to die. He came to die for our sins. And while he joyously celebrated weddings and ate and drank with sinners, he did so with a constant awareness of his approaching death. And that shaped how he lived. Anyone who follows him needs to deal with their death, their faults, and their pride. The Bible says that the wages of sin is death, and that death would be eternal. But Jesus died for sinners on the cross so that all who trust him would receive eternal life. Now, that doesn't mean that Christians can live in denial of death, but it means that Jesus has taken the finality out of, out of it for them. He's removed what's ugliest about death so we can embrace it instead of fearing it. We turn to Jesus in faith by admitting the sin in our lives and agreeing to turn from it. But that's not just how you begin the Christian life. That's how you live it. We need to break free of the superficiality of this world and get real about the condition of our hearts and the blind spots in our lives. 
We need to allow God to speak to us through his word and through fellowship. We need to be people who invite correction and see the value in it. Finally, you can't begin a relationship with Jesus without dealing with your pride. To follow Jesus, you need to say by faith, you're God and I'm not. I'm a sinner and I need a savior. But again, that's not just how you start the Christian life, it's how you live it. I've learned a number of things as a Christian, but I'm still not God and I'm still not in control. And my blood pressure rises every time I refuse to admit that and think that I know better. So let's humble ourselves in worship. Let's admit that we need rescuing again today. And let's ask Jesus to open our eyes and embrace this world as it is instead of looking away and pretending that it's something that it's not. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the way that your word opens our eyes to the realities that our world keeps trying to distract us from. Help us not to live falsely thinking that we will live forever, at least not living forever in this world. Help us to embrace the reality of death and may it be our teacher. May we allow death to give us clarity, to live light, live life in light of what is to come, in, in light of what is eternal, and not to be distracted by uh, the things of this world that would keep us from heaven's values. Father, help us not to be defensive. Help us to be the people who invite correction, who receive negative feedback, and try to learn from it. Try to understand what you might be seeking to teach us from it. Not that it's always right, not that it's always helpful, but help us to be willing to to learn and to grow as we uh, hear the rebuke and the correction of godly people. Finally, Father, we pray that you'd humble us. Help us to lift you up in our lives and to bring ourselves down. Help us to worship you, to exalt you, and to glorify you. Help us to make much of you and to make much of your plan. Help us to trust that you're in control and to release that control ourselves. And as we do, Father, lead us often to the cross because we need grace and we need mercy. We fail at these things. And so it is only through Christ that we find confidence before you. It is through Christ and his death on our behalf, that we need not fear death, but can look forward in hope and anticipation for all that you will do in the life to come. Guide us in these, Father, for we ask you in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I hope this message has helped you to see life as it is when you're tempted to look away. 
and helped you to come to terms with the reality of your death, your weaknesses, and your pride. If today's talk has stirred up questions or you'd like to know more about a relationship with Jesus, send me an email or leave a comment below. And if you think this is a message that others need to hear, leave a comment, share the link, and help spread the word. As always, for more messages of hope, visit gracebc.ca. God bless and see you next time.